Uh, my name is Matt Lelloyne. If we have never met before, um, I'm the pastor of Liberty Church, and uh, it's an honor to have you here for whatever reason you find yourself here this morning. Uh, if you have uh, a Bible, go ahead and make your way to John chapter 21. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles under your seat, uh, that's going to put you on page 907. And today we're, we're closing out our series uh, in the Gospel of John. So if you're, if you're new with us this morning, uh, you're here for the very end of, of really what's been for us um, four and a half months of our Sundays. We started in this series um, back in early December, walking through John 1 in Advent, and we've been pressing on through uh, the rest of the Gospel of John for the last several months. John's uh, narrative, John's gospel, uh, it confirms a lot of what's in the other gospels from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, he also adds stuff that's not in any of those gospels at all. He adds his own pieces that, that weren't included for whatever reason by the other gospel writers. And this question that we've been seeking to answer in this series is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The portrait that John paints is multifaceted. It's that Jesus is the light in the darkness. He's the righteous rebel. He's the bread of life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the I am. He's God in the flesh. He's the true vine. Many more things. So John, John gives us this really well-rounded, robust picture of who Jesus is, all these different elements of the identity of Jesus. And today we get one more piece of that picture when we see in John 21, Jesus is the sender. He's the sender. We read last week uh, in John chapter 20 that when Jesus appears to his disciples on that Easter Sunday, and he shows up in this room where the disciples are gathered, they're hiding behind a locked door, fearful, cowering because of the Jewish leaders. They think the Jewish leaders are coming to get them. Jesus says in John 20, 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And what that means when Jesus says that is that the same way that the Father sent the Son, the same way that God the Father sent Jesus into the world on this mission of redemption and reconciliation, Jesus is going to send his followers into the world to continue that same work that he's been doing. So I don't know if you, if you get to, to really step back and think about that very often or how much that just excites you about what you get invited into as someone who follows Jesus. You get to use your life for the very same redemption and reconciliation, that same kind of work that Jesus did, that Jesus is doing through us now. It's been famously said that uh, the church doesn't have a mission. The mission of God now has a church. Anyone heard that before? The church doesn't have a mission. The mission of God has a church. In other words, you know, God has been on this mission from eternity past. It's not something different that he's doing. It's a new means through a new type of people that Jesus has bought, reconciled to himself. But he sends his people on that same mission, that same work that he himself has been doing. Now, John 21 uh, spells this out in a little bit more detail. And in it, we see Jesus restore, and then we see him commission his followers. He sends them on, he sends them forward, he sends them out into the world that Jesus himself came to and loved and now is about to depart from. So I'm going to start in verse 15 of John chapter 21 and then take it through um, the end of the book, the end of the Gospel of John. You can follow along with me as I read. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining a table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for all that has been written, even though there's so much more that could be written. And I pray that in what John recorded so faithfully for us, in what we get to look into today in John 21, we would see even more clearly, an even more robust and well-rounded picture of Jesus, who you are, that you are the one who restores, that you are the one who commissions and sends us into the world, that we are invited into such a worthwhile pursuit in our lives, to be on the same mission that God has been after and doing since eternity past. Help us to see that, help us to apply it to our lives, break up the hardness in our hearts, and even prepare us to be sent into the world that you love. Let me pray that in your name. Amen. So really, in John 21, there's actually two pieces that we really need to look at here. Um, Jesus is the reclaimer. He's the reclaimer. He reclaims those who have fallen away from him, and then he's the sender. He sends those who, who he's reclaimed out into the world to follow him. So first, let's talk about Jesus as the reclaimer. Uh, my brother-in-law is a man named Mitch Trump. Uh, he's here every now and then, uh, so if you get a chance to meet him, I would encourage you to do that. Um, he and my sister live in Kansas City, um, where he is one of the founders and co-owners of a company called Second Life Studios. Uh, he's a very expert woodworker and craftsman, and really the thing that differentiates Second Life Studios from other woodworkers or contractors or craftsmen is that they almost exclusively use reclaimed materials. Uh, specifically, Second Life Studios specializes in tearing down these old, dilapidated barns that exist all over the Midwest, where they live, and then reclaiming and repurposing the wood uh, from those barns, turning them into something different. It started as this kind of little niche business. You know, Joe and Sally so-and-so from Podunk, Western Kansas, um, wanted a coffee table for their house, or wanted an end table, or wanted a headboard. Uh, but it has since taken off as 
startups and restaurants and churches and other kinds of businesses um, see the value of sustainability, of reusing materials like that, and they also see the story that these old materials tell when they're repurposed like that. A couple months ago, the, uh, the team at Second Life Studios posted this um, short article on their website called Why Reclaim Materials, something that they wrote. And I want to read a portion of that for you uh, just this morning. It says, We exist to design purposefully, purposefully built spaces with repurposed materials. Why repurposed materials? We believe they have a compelling narrative. When we tear down a barn, we see history. Doors, loft, ladders, and floorboards have all seen a hundred years of service. We also see future. That barn in Seneca we tore down a few months ago had outlived its usefulness as a barn. But the materials still had life in them. After days of crowbars, chainsaws, pliers, and planers, that wood is ready to be made into, into a beautiful space again. And it's not just beautiful because of the color or grain, although both are gorgeous. It's not just beautiful because of the inspired design or unique elements, although both are true. It's beautiful because it's a second life. Second chances speak to us and our longing for redemption. Reclaiming those materials isn't just about what's trendy. It's about pointing to something in our souls that longs for renewal. We hope to point to that longing for reclamation in everything we put out. That's why our name is Second Life Studios. Now, I don't know about you, that is a stirring and compelling vision for why a company exists and does what it does. And as Christians, we would all do well to start to grasp an understanding of calling and vocation that runs deep in the veins of the people who work at that company. That's, we'll save that piece of it for, for another day. But did you hear in what, that, what they wrote in that article, did you hear the echoes of John 21? Did you hear echoes of John 21? Before old barnwood can be repurposed, commissioned into something new and beautiful, it has to be reclaimed. There's, the, there's this history, but there's also, like they said, there's a future. The materials still had life in them. What a great line. The materials still had life in them. There's life and a future in this old material. It just takes a skilled craftsman, a visionary craftsman, to see that and to reclaim it from its dead and outlived past into something new and different for the future. Okay, now that is the story of the Apostle Peter. He has a history. And before he can be sent out to lead, to establish this church that Jesus is, fa- is founding, he needs to be reclaimed. So, so rewind back a couple weeks earlier, before this instance in John 21, to the upper room. Jesus is there with his disciples, and in John chapter 13, Peter makes this huge promise to Jesus. He says this, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And many of you are familiar with the story. As it unfolds, that's exactly what happens. Um, Peter denies Jesus three times. And he does it in grand fashion. So whatever PG-rated version you have of this in your mind, blow that up. And sometimes we're guilty of taming or prettying up what's actually written for us in Scripture. So maybe the impression that you have in your mind of Peter's denial is like that he was just kind of shyly, quietly denying Jesus. That may have been how the first couple went. 
But the third one, at least the third one, we're told explicitly that he invokes a curse upon himself and swears. Okay, So he literally is saying something like, may I be damned to hell if I am lying to you. I do not know that man. I do not know him. Cursing himself as he says it. Now earlier in his life, Jesus has taught his disciples that whoever is ashamed of the Son of Man, of him also the Son of Man will be ashamed. So those who reject, those who deny Jesus, will also be rejected by and denied by Jesus. Unless there's forgiveness. Unless there is restoration. So you see Peter's really deep need here. He needs to be reclaimed as a disciple and a follower of Jesus. And that's not just Peter. That's really, that's all the disciples. All of them fall away from Jesus in the garden. All of them abandon him to suffer, to die alone. It's just that because Peter had the most spectacular of the denials, the most explicit, the most loud rejection of Jesus, John records his restoration as the most spectacular restoration. And what Jesus does here in John 21 so well mirrors Peter's denial. So at Jesus' trial, Peter is standing over a charcoal fire warming his hands. And that's the scene when he denies Jesus those three times. Here in John 21, he stands again over a charcoal fire, this time for breakfast with Jesus. And Jesus asks him to affirm his love and devotion, not once, not twice, but also three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And just as that emotion builds in Peter toward the third one, just when you kind of might expect him to either just be crushed by the weight of the despair of what he had done, or get angry again and start invoking curses upon himself again, Jesus says, you will follow me to your death. Now follow me. It's a threefold restoration for a, for a threefold denial. But that isn't just Peter's story. That isn't just the other disciples' story, is it? That's our story. That's our story. It's the story of our lives. Each of us have a deep and a desperate need to be reclaimed by Jesus. And maybe our denials, maybe our rejections aren't as spectacular, aren't as grandiose as Peter's, but we've each denied and rejected Jesus in some way. That's what sin is. That's a definition of sin. And so each of us need a second life. We need to be born again, is one of the ways Jesus talked about it and described it earlier in John's Gospel. To see the deadness to see the the uselessness of what we once held dear, of what we once pursued, and be given a repurposed second life instead. That's that's what Jesus does. He does exactly that kind of work. And he's actually already done that for Peter, even before John 21. He's already commissioned Peter once before in his life to follow. But like Peter, even after we're following Jesus, even after we become his followers, we still deny Jesus. We still reject Jesus. We still think we're more capable and competent to lead our own lives. We still ignore his direction and his guidance. We still get ashamed of him. So we have an ongoing need to be reclaimed, to be forgiven, to be recommissioned, sent out to follow him. So let me ask you this. What sin are you personally holding on to? What are you holding on to? Where have you let a certain sin, be it a one-time 
spectacular sin from your past or an ongoing pattern of sin, where have you let that define your life more than the restoration of Jesus, the restoration that he offers you? Some of us, even here today, feel so crushed and hindered by a particular sin that we can't fathom using our lives for something good. Can't fathom doing something good and worthwhile with our lives. We're so crushed by that from our past or our present. Others of us are so guilty and shame-ridden that we've committed ourselves to a plan of somehow paying off the debt from God. Like, God, I will make this up to you somehow. But no, you won't. No, you won't. You can't possibly. And that's actually okay. Take heart in the fact that you can't pay this back to God. Because that is the work that Jesus has come to do. And you're never too far gone to be reclaimed by Jesus. And we got to see, in the story of Peter specifically, Jesus looking at this man who has denied him so spectacularly and saying to Peter, there is still life in you. There's still life in you. Of course there's history, but there's also a future. And so let Jesus, the reclaimer, chainsaw and crowbar and plier and plane you, let him make you beautiful again, restoring you to all that you're intended to be as an image bearer of God. Because that's the work that Jesus has come to do. That's what the cross and the resurrection is all about. Taking us at our worst from failure, from the worst of our sin, redeeming the heartbreak of what sin has rotted and corrupted in our lives, and reclaiming him to himself. So Jesus is the reclaimer. He's also the sender. He's the sender. And he reclaims so that he might send. He heals so that he might commission. And again here, Peter is the main picture of that playing out in John chapter 21. But we, but we miss something that's really important if we were to stop reading at the end of verse 19. Because there's actually two different sendings included in John 21. There's Peter who is sent to die, and there's John, who is sent to live. Peter is sent to die. John is sent to live. Now, Peter's is the more obvious one. Jesus offers him this threefold restoration. He keeps saying to him, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And he's sending Peter, he's entrusting him to be a leader of the early church. It's an extension of Jesus's not only just ministry in general, but his own care, his own authority for his people. You know, he says, these are, these are my sheep. They're my lambs. They're my people. But I'm going to send you to be the one to care for them. And we know that Peter takes that really seriously for the rest of his life. There's a letter written by Peter that we actually studied last fall together. There's a whole section in that letter about this responsibility that Peter sees as his own and owns. And he says, you know, he writes in there to other shepherds of what it looks like to care for the flock of God. Jesus gets even more specific, though, as he talks to Peter. He tells Peter that he's going to die in the process of doing this. And not just generally speaking, like from old age. You're going to die in the process of doing this. Not right away, but when you're old, he says you're going to stretch out your hands, you're going to be carried to where you do not want to go. And Jesus is telling him there not only that he's going to die, but how he's going to die. Now, the Bible doesn't record for us the end of Peter's life. It really doesn't record the end of any of the apostles' life, uh, lives except James. But really, the unquestioned historical record is that Peter was crucified in Rome 
under Emperor Nero sometime in the mid-60s A.D. There's one tradition in particular that actually says he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy of dying in the same exact way that, that Jesus did. So he asked for an, like an alternate crucifixion. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. It doesn't really matter. What does matter is that as Jesus sends Peter, he, sends that the, he says that the way that Peter specifically is going to glorify God is by dying a martyr's death. So Peter actually is going to make good on that promise that he made in the upper room. It's just going to come a lot later than he thought it was going to come. And Jesus says, there you go. Now follow me. Let's go. Okay, that's Peter. What about John? What about John? That's the, that's the exact question that's on Peter's mind. He turns around. You can envision the scene. He turns around, and he realizes that John is right there, He's within earshot of this conversation. He's, hold this, he's heard this whole conversation play out. And Peter, maybe a little bit freaked out, like, wow, what did I just get into? Like, what did Jesus just tell me? I'm going to die doing this? Okay. Maybe a little bit of that. Maybe a little bit of basking in the joy and the honor of being commissioned for something so significant. You know? Maybe a combination, probably a combination of both. He immediately wants to know, well, what about that guy? If that's what I'm going to go do, what about that guy over there? What about John? And Jesus' response to Peter here have got to be some of the most underrated words in the Bible. Because you don't ever hear people quote this. This isn't like a well-known passage of Scripture, per se. But there's such a freedom that Jesus unlocks in just a few simple words here. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he should remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. In other words, Peter, that is not your concern. That is not your concern. Maybe he'll die a martyr's death just like you. Maybe he won't die at all. You know, maybe he'll last all the way to my second coming. That's not what should occupy your energy and your time and your attention. Get your eyes, get your attention off of John and get them on me instead. You follow me. As it turns out, John's sending is very different from Peter's. Peter's sent to die. John is sent to live. And it's a lot harder to know exactly what happens to the Apostle John at the end of his life, but the consistent witness of the early church is that he lived to be a very old man. Somewhere between 95 AD and 100 AD is when most uh, accounts put him as, as dying, which puts him in the ballpark of about 100 years old when he died. He didn't live until Jesus' second coming. You know, John's not hiding out somewhere in the world that will find him today. He didn't make it that long. And he actually clears up here what apparently became a misperception in the early church. Jesus didn't actually say that he wasn't going to die. He just was making a point, you know, to Peter. Nonetheless, that means from this moment in John 21, these two men standing there with Jesus on the beach, from that moment, John is going to live twice as long as Peter is. Twice as long. And in fact, by the time that John actually writes this down, Peter's already been dead for at least 10 years. Maybe 20, maybe even more than that. So their lives, their futures are really different. Uh, one, one scholar sums it up this way. Peter would be the shepherd, John the seer. Peter the preacher, John the penman. Peter the foundational witness, John the faithful writer. Peter would die in the agony and passion of martyrdom. John would live on to a great age and then pass away. So here's the question for us this morning. Which one of those things sounds better to you? 
Which one sounds better to you? It's, I would submit to you, it's a lot more complicated a question than it might originally sound. It's a lot more complicated a question than it would originally sound. There's this tension. And there's a tension that exposes really the fear that's in each of us. A different apostle, the apostle Paul, actually dives right into that tension in Philippians 1. And he says this, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So when someone belongs to Jesus, who belongs to Jesus, when they die, they go and depart to be with Jesus. They get to experience the presence of Jesus, a fullness of joy and satisfaction that we only taste a glimpse of in this life. Which means that in the ultimate scheme of things, a shorter life and death at the end of a shorter life isn't exactly the tragedy that we make it out to be. It is in one respect for sure. It's not in this one. But though many of us might believe that doctrinally, Very few of us believe that in practice. Many of us are afraid to die. We're crippled by the fear of what it looks like to get old and lose our faculties slowly. You know, we're crippled by the idea that of the risk or the, the cost that Jesus might ask us to pay up to and including our own lives. So we play it safe instead. We pursue comfort trying to prolong our lives in one way or another. On the other hand, though, Many of us are afraid to live. Many of us are afraid to live. If we believe that to die and to depart to be with Jesus is actually such a a good thing, and it is, maybe it's more terrifying to navigate additional years in this life. Especially in this world that's fractured by our own sin and the sin of other people against us. In a lot of ways, it takes more courage for John to live till he's 100 years old than it does for Peter to die a martyr's death in his 60s. In a lot of ways, it takes more courage to follow Jesus day in and day out for more days this side of eternity. Certainly, if this were just about me and Jesus, death would be the choice. It's better by far. Let's trust in Jesus. Let's die. Let's go be with him. But it's never just about me and Jesus. It's never just about you individually and Jesus. Don't forget the the context of what Paul is talking about in Philippians. Don't forget the context of what Peter and John are experiencing in John chapter 21. They're being sent into the world that Jesus loves. There are literally billions of other people, image bearers of God, who are involved in this process. They need to be redeemed. They need to be reclaimed by Jesus. And so Jesus will send some people to die as a picture of courageous sacrifice and faithfulness. And Jesus will send some people to live as a picture of courageous sacrifice and faithfulness. And if we're honest, we always want Jesus to send us to the one that we're least afraid of. If we're afraid to die, then Jesus, please send me to live. If we're afraid to live, Jesus, please send me to die. Either way, like Peter, 
we will constantly be tempted to look over our shoulder at other people and ask Jesus, what about them? Is it fair? Are they going to pay the same cost that I have to pay? The costs are so radically different. Peter and John are an illustration of, they're a microcosm of that for each of our own lives and our own temptations to compare. All of it is costly. To follow Jesus is costly. It demands courage. It demands sacrifice. It demands faithfulness. And what we see in John 21, which is a gift to us, because it, it frees us up from thinking there's just one of these two ways is the right way. It's a gift. What we see is that some will die so that God will be glorified, and some will live so that God will be glorified. And some will die so that people see the worth of Jesus, and some will live so that people see the worth of Jesus. And the point in it is not comparing the cost, comparing the future of what my future might look like compared to yours. The point is that we, each of us individually, and then somehow together in a community of people, follow Jesus. The point is faithfulness to him, following him whatever, regardless of what he puts in front of you, whatever he's sending you into. We've got to hear these words from Jesus that he says to Peter, you follow me. That's your concern. You follow me. So whatever your past or present looks like, see Jesus as the reclaimer. And don't ever believe the lie that you are too far gone to be reclaimed by him. Don't ever believe the lie that you're not worth that. Would you hear Jesus say there's still life in you? There's still life in you, regardless of how much you've shipwrecked your life up to this point. There is still life in you. And experience his restoration. It is an unbelievable gift that Jesus would restore us, reclaim us in that way, and then invite us into the very same mission that God has been doing from eternity past. So may we get our eyes off of ourselves. May we get our eyes off of the specific costs and the specific futures that other people are called to pay and, and pursue. And may we fix our eyes on Jesus instead so that we could say with Paul that with full courage now as always, we want Christ to be honored in us, whether by life or by death. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you send us? We, we need to be reclaimed and we need to be sent. And whatever the hindrance is, where we, whether we think we're too far gone or whether we try to pursue obedience and faithfulness to you, making up for some kind of debt that we can't repay on our own, would you free us from that? Would we see that, Jesus, you have done all that is necessary to reclaim us, that your work finishes that process in the sight of God. It is done. It is done. And would we see then in Peter and John that you're going to send some of us to die. And some of us will die young. And some of us won't. You'll send some of us to live. Whichever one we're afraid of or however we're afraid of both of those things. Would you, would you help us, Jesus? Would you empower us by your Spirit that we might trust that you've invited us into what is so infinitely more worthwhile and joy-producing than anything else we could devote our lives to. We see the worth, Jesus, not only of what you've done, but what you've invited us into in an ongoing way. Meet with us as we come to your table because we constantly need to be renewed and strengthened by you, reclaimed by you. And as we come, would it even be a declaration of, even, of, of today 
that you are reclaiming us today, that there is still life in us today, that you are going to send us out today. I pray this in your name. Amen.